1: You write that for Lulu, sex and yoga were mutual portals to her soul. That's a quote from the book. How important would you say music is in the novel?
2: Oh, it's really important, Christy. It's the soundtrack to my characters' lives, to the times, to their emotions, just as it is to mine as a
1: writer. Let's talk about Yusi, who calls himself the Finnish Bob Dylan. That's the character that I most associate with music in the novel.
2: UC is a graduate student, but he's a huge Bob Dylan fan. He's a fanatic Bob Dylan fan. He goes to all Bob Dylan's concerts in Europe, and he uses Bob Dylan as a role model for having a sense of style. So even though I call him a heavy metal Bob Dylan, because he wears more chains and rings and vests, and he doesn't necessarily dress like Bob Dylan, although maybe Dylan did dress that way.
1: He did for a while.
2: And his Rolling Thunder ta- mm-hmm. time,
1: right? Yeah. If you had to put Dylan's career from that period, the late 90s through 2001, into a box and slap a label on it, <laughs> what can you come, can you come up, up with?
3: with? So, the 1999 period, which I'm cheating to expand to sort of 97 to 2001, is this kind of period where he decides the kind of performer and recording artist he's going to be, which I know sounds crazy for Dylan. He's been around for thirty-five years at that point, but I think he really has to look and think, well, who am I now?
1: Wasn't there some controversy surrounding that album, Love and Theft?
3: Morning. This sort of content is questionable.
1: I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show.
4: Is lit.
1: Welcome to season two of Rock Is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by Pantheon Podcast Network. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes featuring some amazing rock novelists and music experts. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, searching for Jimmy Page from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and pop on over to Good Pods or Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and rating. As always, Wyatt, the Rocky's lip Limp mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Hello, Lit listeners. What do yoga, the Y2K freakout, Finland, and Bob Dylan have in common? Cheryl J. Fish, that's what. Cheryl brings them all together in her debut novel from Livingston Press, Off the Yoga Mat, set in that crazy year, 1999, when everybody feared a looming mass technological meltdown and started filling their garages with buy-in-bulk toilet paper and miscellaneous canned goods. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Cheryl is here to talk about her novel. Later, Lucas Hare, co-host of the Is It Rollin' Bob Talkin' Dylan podcast, drops by to enlighten us about what Bob Dylan was actually up to in 1999. But first, we welcome Cheryl J. Fish to the show. Cheryl is a poet, fiction writer, and environmental humanities scholar. Besides off the yoga mat, she is the author of The Sauna is Full of Maids, poems and photographs celebrating Finnish sauna culture, the natural world, and friendships and Crater & Tower, poems reflecting on trauma and ecology after the Mount St. Helens volcanic eruption and the terrorist attack of 9-11. Cheryl has been a Fulbright professor in Finland and is co-editor with Farah Griffin of A Stranger in the Village, two centuries of African-American travel literature. Cheryl's poems and short fiction have appeared in various journals such as Hanging Loose, Terrain, Mom Egg Review, New American Writing, Cheap Pop, KGB Bar Lit, and more. Her essays on environmental justice through art, film, and media were published in 2018 in the collection Nordic Narratives of Nature and the Environment from Lexington Books. Cheryl is a creative writing editor of the journal Echo Scene, a professor of English at BMCC City University of New York, and docent lecturer at University of Helsinki. Thanks for joining the show, Cheryl.
2: Thank you so much, Christy. I'm really glad to be here.
1: Glad you are here. So we know from my intro that Bob Dylan has a big presence in Off the Yoga Mat, and I happen to know you are a big fan of his. There are a lot of other artists whose music gets a mention or plays a role of some sort in the novel. I'm interested to find out who else is on your musical radar, so let's play a set of five questions. What music video made the biggest impression on you?
2: So for some of your questions, I have multiple answers. That's all right. Okay. So Thriller by Michael Jackson, by far, I'd say was the biggest music video impact because it told a story. It was a performance. It was like a movie. It was just really groundbreaking. And then other than that, since I didn't really watch a lot of MTV, but I was a club kid, I remember Soft Cell and Tainted Love. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That was huge for me in the clubs. And Lots of videos would be in the clubs. I was lucky enough to go to Mud Club before it closed. Mm.
1: Yeah. Okay, number two. You're in a bar and you see a rock star sitting in a corner nursing a drink and reading your book. Who is it and what do you do?
2: Well, you know, I had to say Bob Dylan Christie. He does play such a big role in Off the Yoga Mat. I would ask Bob... What did he think of the idea of a Finnish Bob Dylan, whose persona is influenced by Bob's persona and elusiveness? Because the character of Yussi is very elusive and hard to figure out, like Mr. Zimmerman.
1: (laughs) Okay, fill in the blanks. When I hear blank song, I think of blank.
2: So again, I'm going with Bob. You're a big girl now. I think of heartbreak, idealism, the raw pain of lost love. It's Nora's song in the novel that kind of triggers her <laughs> triggers her realization that she's kind of an idiot uh, when it comes to <laughs> love. <laughs> so um, in, in, in my novel, I connect kind of that song with Idiot wind as well. A conversation.
0: Was short and sweet It nearly swept me Off of my feet And I'm back in the green mm-hmm. You are on dry land mm-hmm. You made it there somehow
1: You're a big girl now What's on your playlist now? I've got a lot of
2: stuff on my playlist. Quite eclectic. I've got Kurt Vile. I love Kurt Vile. Love Kurt Vile. Love him. Uh, he he gets me in the mood to write for whatever reason. Okay. Alice Coltrane. So you know most people yes. know John, but I love Alice and her her Buddhist harp and just spiritual music very much. Radiohead. I'm a huge Radiohead fan. I'm Led Zeppelin, of course, Christy.
1: Oh, you just threw that in because of me. No, no, no.
2: Pharoah Sanders, his latest, last recording, Floating Points, is just stunning. Yola Tango, a local ish band. I'm from New York City, and they're from Hoboken. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Cass McCombs. Fiona Apple. PJ Harvey. Halisa. Good Lord. Sonny Chirac. Rolling Stones, Tim Buckley, The Feelys, and The Smiths. And I'll stop there.
1: You sure that's all? No, that's not all. I have like okay. playlist
2: playlist, and I like rotate them. I don't know. I just like a lot of stuff, as you can see.
1: Almost everything on that list are favorites of mine, too. There were a couple that I hadn't heard of, but almost everybody on that list I love, too. Alice Coltrane is just brilliant, or was.
2: That's amazing.
1: Yes. What's your favorite rock novel?
2: High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. You know, it's a little dated, so I was really glad that they did a remake of it with Zoe Kravitz. I thought by switching the protagonist to a female, it really um, was a good move. But just the idea that how, of how music influences your choices in love, I just ate that up.
1: I did not know they'd done a remake. When did they do that? Oh,
2: within the past three years, I'd say. So it's on Hulu. And um, it didn't, you know, some people didn't like it, but I actually liked it better. And they also reversed some of the other characters and made it a little more updated, I would say. You know, I, I like that. And I like that the main character is a woman and a woman of color. I like that a lot.
1: Yes. Let's take a short break. Then we'll be back with Cheryl J. Fish. Later, my go to Bob Dylan guru, pal Lucas Hare, co host of the fabulous podcast Is It Rollin' Bob Talkin' Dylan, drops by to talk about what Bob Dylan's career looked like in the late 1990s, very early 2000s, the period during which Cheryl's novel is set. FYI, Dylan was a whole lot more active than you probably remember or might imagine, so stick around to hear Lucas and me geek out over that phase of Dylan's multifaceted career. Back in a moment.
2: This is Cheryl J. Fish, and you're listening to Rock
4: is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons,
1: We're back with Cheryl J. Fish, author of Off the Yoga Mat. So first of all, congratulations on the novel and for successfully weathering the debut novel publication Shitstorm, as I like to call it, which is really what it is. It's just, whoa, it's a lot. So I know it wasn't easy. And before we go any further, let me just give a quickie synopsis of the story to Orient listeners. It's 1999. Three characters living in New York City will turn 40 as Y2K looms. Nate, a stymied graduate student, delves into yoga. Nate's ex-girlfriend, Nora, finagles a position in Finland where she embraces the Finnish culture and grit in pursuit of motherhood. And Yogi Lulu, Nate's talented teacher, yearns to get to the bottom of her nightmares of childhood abuse in New Orleans where she grew up. So full disclosure, Cheryl's publisher, Joe Taylor at Livingston Press, also published my debut novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. And actually, the press also published Michael Gaspinny's debut novel, The Postcard from the Delta. And Michael was on the show in the first season to talk about his book. So now there are three members of the Livingston Press posse represented on Rock is Lit. Cheryl, like I was saying, I know it was a long process and it's a difficult process to get your book out there. Do you want to talk about that? A little bit about your journey? Oh, yeah.
2: I have a whole essay about that.
1: (laughs) I know. Authors publish. Yeah,
2: case study how I published off the yoga mat. Authors publish is a e-newsletter. Check it out. All I can say is persistence. And um, I just felt like failure was not an option. But trying to get an agent and getting close to that, and then having either them them ghost you or just say, I don't, you know, I don't think I can sell this because you've got three main characters. In this market. So so just heartbreaking. And you feel encouraged when an agent is interested and they compliment your writing, but then they end up saying no, but they're like, it's so personal and good luck with your journey. And so, you know, most of them, most of them are nice about it, but you just feel like, why should I bother a lot of the time? And um, Mm -hmm. so thankfully, there are a lot of small presses, small university presses like Livingston Press. Now there's even something called hybrid presses, and of course, there's self-publishing, so there's so many different journeys that people can take these days. Right. But the key for me was putting it away sometimes and coming back to it fresh and rewriting, a lot of rewriting, a lot of showing it to new readers, getting new, getting new reactions, um, reorganizing some of the chapters, reading it out loud, taking... A workshop at Atlantic Center for the Arts with Bonnie Jo. Campbell was wonderful for me. She's a Michigan writer, a wonderful Michigan writer. And we were a fantastic group at that three-week seminar. And that just kind of rejuvenated my energy, even though we worked on short stories there. Right. You just don't know what's going to do it. You just have to keep going and believe in yourself. It's cliched in a way, but... I recommend it. If you feel that you have to get your work out into the world, then
1: you will. Speaking of that piece you wrote for Authors Publish about your experience publishing your novel, one of the things that struck me was this quote, which deals with a roadblock to finding a home for off the yoga mat. What also plagued me, jealousy. Other writers found readers. They published their books and won awards. Ironically, my character Nate researches the theme of jealousy through literature and psychology for his doctoral thesis, but claims he never gets personally jealous. So, you and the character Nate are in a sense grappling with jealousy in the same way. On the one hand, you're both writing about it from a distance, analyzing it from an intellectual, academic, and clinical perspective, but you're both also personally experiencing it, so your perspectives are also emotional and close. That juxtaposition is fascinating to me, and how it plays out in the novel. When did you know that jealousy would be a major theme in the story?
2: Pretty early on, it, you know, I came up with this idea that he's doing a, a dissertation on jealousy through Shakespeare's characters in Othello and King Lear, but also through Darwin and this idea that somehow the survival, you know, <laughs> survival of the species could be because of a hormone, a jealousy hormone. So it's it's kind of a crazy theory, and um, I knew it was kind of crazy, but, you know, in academia, as you know, Christy, there are all sorts of theories and ideas and pursuits of juxtaposing interdisciplinary, you know, science with psychology, with literature. And, you know, I was always interested in interdisciplinary topics for my dissertation, which was on women's travel writing as a form of subjectivity that enabled women who were silenced to be able to speak because they could do it through travel writing when they could criticize something that they couldn't get away with criticizing in another format. So um, this idea that jealousy could be something you write about as a theory, but you don't believe you actually experience. I mean, it's, of course, you know that Nate is going to get roaring jealous because someone that denies that they get jealous is just setting themselves up. (laughs) Absolutely. I used it also for irony and humor. But I really think in, in writing and, and in academe, uh, there's a lot of competition, I would call it. But a lot of it is collegial and collaborative in both places, in writing and in, and in academe. But, you know, you can't help but feel envious of someone who maybe gets the prizes and gets the recognition if you, if you feel you're good too and you're not getting it. But I think in the end, you realize that jealousy is a lower emotion it's not a high emotion. It's kind of, um, I call it the monkey mind and off the yoga mat. So it's, it's a lower emotion in that as you get older, I think you, you know, you may at times feel, feel it a little bit, but overall, you want to be supportive of other writers and of colleagues and, you know, that's the better way to be. And you feel a lot better.
1: You know, speaking of writers and jealousy, it's difficult because of social media, largely. Everybody is putting out that persona of, you know, like I've won this award, I've done this, I've got this review. If you don't hear about the review that you didn't get, you don't hear, or the review that didn't turn out so well, you don't hear about the famous author you were chasing for a blurb that you didn't get. We're all creating our own sort of alternate reality online. And it's, it's easy to, if you're trying to get your work out there to see that and feel like, well, damn, I can't seem to get a leg up here. So it's social media is an interesting monster.
2: Yes, I agree. And um, it could take over your life. A lot of people get depressed and um, mm-hmm. depression among my students, our students, the young people is extremely high. And I think a lot of it is because of social media that's been studied, actually. Right. So what I think for us, Christy, with you know, having small press publishers We have to build an audience. (laughs) We have to build an audience any way we can. And social media is one of the tools, but also just talking to people, talking to our friends, finding readers one at a time, as they say. Sure. You never know how it's going to come about. So social media can definitely lead you to audiences, but it can also be very, very heartbreaking. I feel it coming It's boiling
4: my blood feel it coming
0: I feel it coming my face I feel it
1: coming Let's shift a little bit. Let's talk about yoga and its significance in the story. As I mentioned in the synopsis, one of the three main characters, Lulu, is a yoga instructor. And I mean, she's a serious practitioner. This is a way of life for her. She even studied in an ashram with the same guru as Allen Ginsberg. Lulu says in one of her classes, we must not forget to practice yoga off the mat, which is where the novel gets its title, obviously. What does she mean by that?
2: So there's a term seva, S-E-V-A, which means um, the service that you do to help people that's not on the yoga mat, that's in the community. Lula is someone who's very interested in helping people on the mat as well as off the mat. So that's what I meant by that. And as you know, in the novel, she's got her own nightmares of domestic violence in her childhood and she has nightmares and is troubled by that. And it's kind of a mystery in the book is to get to the bottom of what happened. She just has flashbacks and little bits and pieces of, of it come. But I think, and she's also a mixed race character. So when she was growing up, it was not talked about that much to be from a mixed race background. And she she felt, you know, she got a lot of negative responses to where she fit in. And uh, so she's really interested in helping people, you know, and giving back to the community. She, she volunteers um, at a soup kitchen early in the book. She just You know, wants people to to take away something from yoga that will help them not only physically, but also emotionally, help them get on with their lives. A big part of the novel is is coming of middle age, you know, turning 40, which may not seem like middle age anymore, you know, especially as we get older. But it, it is an important time in life when you sort of feel like you don't have that much time to play around. If you want to do certain things like have a child, or be in a serious relationship, you start to you start to wonder. And then with the Y2K anxiety, you know, I said it then partly because that just adds this pressure to what it means to be facing a new millennium.
1: Cheryl, what do you remember about that period, that Y2K period? Well,
2: that's the year I had my son.
1: <laughs> okay. So I,
2: I became a single mother at kind of, you know, an older age. So it was a big year for me. And also, I you know, I was deep in my academic career. I, ha- I was trying to publish my dissertation into a book. So just a lot. But what I remember about was the anxiety that our computers were going to crash, that we were going to lose everything we had, that we weren't going to be able to keep track of time anymore. Uh, that was also the year of Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton, Christy.
1: Uh, oh, yes, I'll I remember that well. In
2: research for the novel, that was the year of Columbine High School shooting, Yeah, which was one of the first big mass shootings in the United States. I wove some of those historical events into the novel, uh, but I didn't want to hit people over the head with 1999, but I, I feel like it's definitely there. It's definitely a theme. And of course, now we know that it turned out to not be the problem, that much worse things came like 9-11 two years later. Right. But I purposely didn't want to write about 9-11 because I I live in New York City. I saw the whole thing happen on September 11th. I have my other book that deals with that. Uh, So I I wanted to write about a time before 9-11 because I thought, how could you write a New York City novel and not deal with 9-11 if it happened After 2001.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, and I was glad to see the novel set on the cusp of Y2K rather than 9 11, since so much has been written about 9 11, less so that I've read anyway about the Y2K craze. And what's interesting is that there's that fear in the novel that everything is going to shut down when 2000 rings in. But then there's the character Nate who seems like the antithesis of the typical Y2K prepper. He's not into technology, so he doesn't worry about losing access to technology. And without giving anything away, there is something technology-related that happens to Nate.
2: I know what you mean.
1: Nate the Luddite. But it doesn't have anything to do with Y2K, and absolutely nothing happens to everybody who's been getting ready for all hell to break loose after 2000 arrives. The irony is amusing in the novel. Yeah, the only thing that
2: like resonated, remember when I said that the Finns were preparing for Y2K by, mm-hmm. by, by buying iodine because they were afraid of a meltdown like Chernobyl happening? And ironically enough, the Finns are again buying iodine because of Russia and are in Ukraine now. When I read that, I was like, oh, my God, this is, was in the novel, and now here it is again. Here it is again, this prepping and this precautionary principle that you have to be prepared for the worst. So the the Finns believe in SISU. That's the term, S-I-S-U, SISU. You have a sense of, of dealing with difficulty, but you're going to get through it. And, and you have perseverance and difficulty, even though it might not turn out the way you expect it to. So that's a Finnish term, SISU that Nora gets very motivated by when she's in Finland of, um, of just going and keep going and, and, um, don't let it stop you. Even though, you know, something bad may happen.
1: You got to just work through it. <phone rings> hey, lit listeners, if you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a rating and comment on good pods or Apple podcast. I'll leave links in the show notes. Seriously. Rock is lit is a new show in a sea of podcasts. Help me build momentum about this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels. The way to build that momentum and grow an audience, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to get Rockies lit on some podcast lists with your ratings and comments. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you get some good karma. Links in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back
3: to your regularly scheduled program.
1: You mentioned Nora, so let's stay with her for a minute. Her job sends her over to Finland, to help Nokia prepare for Y2K. You published a book of poems and photographs celebrating Finnish sauna culture called The Sauna is Full of Maids, so you have a long-running affair with this culture, which is prevalent and off the yoga mat. Tell me a little bit about that culture and how Nora immerses herself in it.
2: I went to Finland in 2007 for a Fulbright to teach and research. I didn't know anything about it before I went, sort of like Nora. But then I got really intrigued by the Finns are a paradox. So on the one hand, they're very quiet and shy, but on the other hand, they have a—I call it—a closeted flamboyance, karaoke <laughs> and partying and and rock and roll. And Bethany, the character that's based on a real friend of mine, is in a rock band, even though she's a like a social worker. And I was amazed at how many Finns were in rock bands, mm. in addition to a regular job. They just are in rock bands, and they're they're one of the cultures that reads the most books and has the most libraries and drinks a lot of coffee because of the long, dark winters. So um, also, Finns are known for being honest and straightforward. That was really a, a good quality, and I made friends there that I've stayed in touch with, and I go back regularly. And it's also a beautiful country with a lot of lakes. And since it's got a small population, only 5.5 million, they can't really mess up mess up the nature as much. <laughs> There's too many humans in a place. They usually, unfortunately, ruin it. I admire the way that overall uh, the Finns um, put a lot of value in nature and try to protect it for the most part. I mean, nothing's perfect. They also have nuclear plants and things like that.
1: Right. Yeah. How close was your experience to Nora's? I'm thinking about when she gets there and there's no freezer in her apartment and the guy tells her, well, most visitors don't need freezers. You put your items on the windowsill and there are all these little things like that. I gather this was (laughs) taken from your own experience.
2: Some of it was. Yes, that definitely the incident with the freezer was. Was. So, So some of the incidents were taken from my life and My favorite flea market, which is named in the novel, is really my favorite flea market in Tampara, Finland. But then there's a lot that I made up also. Sure. That's the beauty of writing fiction, Christy, right? You draw on your experience, but then you also use your imagination. Plus you blend in qualities from other people. You make composites. So yes, definitely there were a lot of experiences that Nora goes through that were based on my first time in Finland. But then it gives you a lot of freedom when you don't have to stick to your actual experiences.
1: Sure. I'm really interested in the sauna culture there. And Nora gets really immersed in that. There's this wonderful excerpt where you describe her first experience. I'm going to read that. Nudity in the dark, dry sauna unnerved her. Mothers and children, old women and young, puffy and shapely, sat next to each other on wooden benches. They placed small paper towels under their behinds to prevent burning. Bethany's belly fat hung over her lap, and Nora found her cheerfully unselfconscious as her kids splashed her with water from a bucket. On the other hand, Nora itched to cover her longish belly button, the ridge cellulite on her thighs and buttocks, and her dark nipples, disproportionately large. She ran out of methods to cloak those parts with her hands or by crossing her legs. Then this elderly woman grabs a ladle and throws water on the rocks in the sauna stove to make it extra hot. You're supposed to go and shower in cool water and then go back for another round. And it's supposed to be cleansing and relaxing. I found that fascinating because of the obvious cultural differences between Finland and America. I mean, the importance that we put on the female body, what the female body is supposed to look like, and our perceptions of nudity here, that's a real eye-opener for Nora, that first experience.
0: Well, my body could use a little slimming. I keep my shirt on when I go swimming. And I ain't seen my feet since 1984. 1984. The old lady wants to roll in the hay. We turn the lights down all the way. Because I don't look good naked anymore. No, I don't look good naked anymore.
2: The Finnish sauna culture is so wonderful and beautiful. And when you go to a sauna in the U.S., it's usually from a gym or maybe a spa. And it just isn't the same experience as a Finnish sauna, which is really a spiritual experience and the shift between the extreme heat and the extreme cold is really good for you it's it's a health, you know it's been found to be very healthy and you get this tingling sensation when you when you go in the ice cold water after you've been in the very hot dry heat mm. so but yes the nudity and the acceptance of different body types different age groups is one of the most wonderful things about sauna it's one of the things i as an american responded to it was a little hard to take at first, and uh, my son would probably kill me for mentioning this if he ever listens to this podcast. He was a, you know, he was seven, so he he had to go in the women's sauna because he was with me and my friend and her kids, and he was didn't want to take off his bathing suit to take a shower. They're very strict about you being clean before you go into the pools and into the saunas because they don't put a lot of chlorine in the water and they just have their ways of doing it there. And for a lot of Americans, it's just something they're very uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. Now I think he's he's much more comfortable with it, but he was, you know, he was little and it was very hard for him at the time. And he kind of hid in the changing room. <laughs> I remember that, but I just took to it. Uh, like Nora, I just felt that it was so... Such a great cleanse and it was a great way to relax and you feel so good afterwards. And and in in Finnish conferences, Christy, academic conferences, business conferences, having a sauna evening or afternoon is part of the conference. And you're in your rooms wow. with all your conference mates. And some of them aren't, aren't aren't necessarily nude, but they may be. If it's sex, usually if it's sex segregated, it isn't it is, it is nude. If it's a mixed sauna, then usually you do wear your bathing suit. But like it, when I was there for several different conferences, it was just part of the conference program. And I just love that so much. And also you talk to people, you talk differently when you're sitting naked next to somebody. <laughs> you, just, you, you open up in a different way. And then part of the other ritual is afterwards and Finns like to drink beer and, and grill sausage. <laughs> so that's really kind of a fun. And then at midsummer, which is, you know, a big holiday in Finland, Johannes, it's called in fin- in Finland. You go to cottages and you hopefully have a lake right near your sauna and you alternate the hot and cold between the, the lake and the sauna. And then you take these bundles of birch branches and you, you either hit yourself with them or someone hits you with them. And it's beautiful. It smells beautiful. It's very stimulating. Mm. So, yeah, so I, I love it. And, you know, it's becoming bigger in North America. It's becoming, you know, gaining interest in, in North America and, and all over the world. An interesting fact is there's now a sauna aid society that's bringing portable saunas to Ukraine. So the people, you know, in the war <laughs> have a place where they can relax. And um, they're fundraising to do that, to bring to bring a little portable sauna into the, the, the lives of the soldiers. And wow. Isn't that impressive? So, you know, just recognizing that it's, it can be very relaxing and soothing to people to have a place where they can, where they can sweat where they can slow down, where they can just cleanse themselves.
1: Okay, let's circle back to Lulu. I'm not done with Lulu yet. Yes. Lulu, like Nate and Nora, is a complex character with a lot of baggage. And you mentioned that she had that domestic abuse in her history. And I took it a step further and said, no, it was really childhood sexual abuse that we're talking about getting more specific. This affects her attitude towards sex as an adult. Do you want to talk about that?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about. It was a hard thing to write. And I did a lot of research on that topic because obviously it could be triggering for some people, but basically she, she had some made some bad choices about her partners over the years. um, And often victims of, of sexual abuse have that problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's been in relationships that were less than fulfilling that were uneven in terms of power. Her story arc is about healing that, healing that problem. And, and also, she is a sexual person, and she feels beauty and joy through sexuality. So she has those that extremely complicated push and pull of unfortunately, sometimes being attracted to, you know, people that are not good for her, but on the other hand, wanting a slower and more meaningful connection. And we won't say what happens, right. right? That's the sort of struggle that is, is Lulu's storyline. And it was definitely not easy to write. But I've done a lot of academic research on African-American women, on their strength and their resilience and in all kinds of situations. And I feel like I at least partly drew on,
1: on all of that tradition that I've read a lot about and thought a lot about. You write that for Lulu, sex and yoga were mutual portals to her soul. That's a quote from the book. It was the equipment in her playground. And I think there is something very sensual about yoga. And you can even find websites that explore how yoga can improve your sex life. So this connection to me feels organic in the book. But it's more complicated than that for Lulu. How does she view that connection between sex and yoga?
2: It's definitely there because. I don't want to give away the plot, but when you know she gets involved with one of the, with one of the other characters in the book, you can sort of see mm-hmm. she finds a lot of strength through yoga. Well, she is strong physically and subtle because of the, you know, yoga helps you with flexibility, yoga helps you, the breathing in yoga helps you with relaxation. So it's definitely connected to to being comfortable with sex and being empowered. Through sex, but yet there's a line that Lulu doesn't want to cross, where it becomes a painful or abusive. So I don't want to give away too much, but no. certainly the novel explores those various struggles that she goes through, with you know, with the empowered part of sex, but also the um, the possibly uh, hurtful, hurtful part of sex that triggers fear and memories that she doesn't, that are unpleasant. <laughs> so right. that was hard to work through. And then also make make it sort of interesting for the reader and not be too graphic. I definitely did not want to be too graphic.
1: And you weren't. Yeah. There's uh, nothing gratuitous about it. it. I think there's just enough to get the point across. Your sister teaches yoga. Mm-hmm. How involved are you in the practice?
2: I'm an irregular practitioner of yoga like Nate. I, I wouldn't wear jeans, though, to class like. <laughs> 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 my mother did yoga when I was a kid, just like in the novel. I mentioned that Lulu's mother did yoga to a TV yogi. And my mother did that when I was little. So I saw that as a kid. And, you know, over the years, I've done yoga on and off. I've taken many different classes with many different kinds of yoga. I've gone to some ashrams. I've gone to retreats. And, you know, I I have some routines, but I could be more disciplined. I'm not very disciplined. But that being said, I do yoga stretches. I do downward dogs. I do. I love um, warrior poses. I love triangles. I like the tree pose. Uh, So I have a repertoire of just exercise I try to do. um, Maybe not every day, but at least a few times a week. And it definitely has. It definitely has yoga in it. And then maybe it mixes it also with some Pilates, which I did for a while and just stretches. And then I have done physical therapy for various problems I've had. So I mix in some physical therapy moves and, but I'm definitely not disciplined in a yoga practice. And I sort of wish I was, but, you know, to be honest, (laughs) I have a ways to go with that, but I, you know, respect it a lot. And, um, and as you notice, I also like to laugh at yoga. I, I like yes. to make fun of it because, you know, it is, it does, it does come from, you know, India and Sanskrit tradition and um, the westernization of yoga makes it all about wearing the right pants. You know? Yoga butt. Yoga butt. It's just become too extremely narcissistic. And of course, not everybody is that way, but like, you can't help but make fun of it a little bit because. It's just, it's gotten a little out of control, but then I also do respect it. So I try to do, again, I try to hit both of those kind of points.
0: My wife was out for three days to visit her mom. I was supposed to cook and clean while she was gone. Somehow she never buckles under all the demands. I had to know her secret, I had to understand. Well, I thought it might be coffee, but that gives her the shakes. It might be soap operas, but she says they're too fake. It's not the car she drives or what she puts in her hair. I realized it's got to be something that she wears. Yoga pants. Hmm. (laughs) She wears them all day. Yoga pants.
1: Hmm. Well, it took us a while, but we're finally getting to the music part of our discussion of Off the Yoga Mat. The novel reads like it has a built-in soundtrack, and you did create a playlist for the book for Large-Hearted Boy, a literature and music website that explores the overlap of music and literature. How important would you say music is in the novel?
2: Oh, it's really important, Christy. It's the soundtrack to my characters' lives, to the times, to their emotions. Just as it is to mine as a writer, I feel like music... Is such an inspiration to my writing process. So it, it's both music is both integral to my life and my writing practice, and it is to my characters.
1: Do you listen to music while you write?
2: A lot of the times I do. Certain times I can't, but then other times I can. So it really is depending on what what I'm writing. If it's a first draft or a revision, if it's Going to contribute to the mood and the rhythm of the section I'm writing, or if it's going to distract me, and that's why music that maybe doesn't always have words, like sometimes music that has no lyrics, can be okay. Um, but but sometimes music with lyrics might be distracting. On the other hand, it can also be enabling.
1: Yeah, I can't listen to it when I'm writing before and after. That's the practice. But getting back to Nora. Nora plays songs in her head at certain moments. There are parts in the book where something pivotal happens to her, and she will immediately think of a song that fits the situation she's in. For example, you mentioned Bob Dylan's You're a Big Girl Now earlier. Nora fixates on that song during one point. Let's talk about Yusi, who calls himself the Finnish Bob Dylan. That's the character that I most associate with music in the novel
2: see, is a graduate student, but he's a huge Bob Dylan fan. He's a fanatic Bob Dylan fan. He goes to all Bob Dylan's concerts in Europe, and he uses Bob Dylan as a role model for having a sense of style. So even though I call him a heavy metal Bob Dylan, because he wears more chains and rings and vests, and he doesn't necessarily dress like Bob Dylan, although maybe Dylan did dress that way. and.
1: He did for a Thunder while.
2: In his Rolling Thunder ta- time, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. And you say he's kind of caught in the Rolling Thunder era, let's say. He's attracted to Dylan's crypticness, his, his great sense of poetics in his writing, his kind of droney voice, his mysteriousness. He kind of uh, adapts a Bob Dylan like, let's say, persona, but he's an academic, a Finnish academic. <laughs> And um, and like I said, a lot of times Finns, especially the guys, are on the quieter, shyer side, so it kind of fits really well. But at the time when Nora meets him and develops a crush on him, he is heavily drinking, so part of his personality is fueled, of, of course, by alcohol. <laughs> and he loves Dylan. His his house would have all of Dylan's albums, all of the books about Dylan. He would he would spare no expense to order any, any new book or collection that comes out about Dylan.
1: Okay. Now, where did this character come from? He is in part based
2: on someone I know. Well, was he into Dylan or somebody else? He was into Dylan, but he's also into Elvis. Oh, really? Yeah. He's also into Elvis equally, but I just decided to make it about Dylan instead.
1: Yeah, oh, that, would have yeah. Been, <laughs> that would have been <laughs> a strange combination had you turned them both.
2: And also, the real person it's based on did not dress the way see did, was not into the Moomins. So I mentioned also the Moomins. Yeah. The Moomins are by Tova Jansson, and they're a wonderful cartoon. There's books, and there's all kinds of merchandise with the Moomins. She also wrote adult novels. Tova Jansson was a Swedish-speaking fan. And, I became a huge fan of the Moomins, and I started to collect the Moomin mugs that are put out in Finland. And so, in the novel, Yusi is also into all the Moomin stuff, and yeah. Nora talk about it. But in the real life, character the real life person was not. I think he didn't like the Moomins actually.
1: <laughs> Moving away from Dylan, but still in the realm of music, I have to tell you, I love this quote. When the character Muriel, who is a girl that Nate has been seeing. Calls him after he's kind of gone AWOL. He uses his dissertation as an excuse of why he hasn't seen her or called and tells her he can't talk right then. And here's the quote He knew he sounded like a bad rock and roll cliche, a cross between the dickhead and free bird and the pompous ass and babe, I'm going to leave you. And that made me laugh out loud. And then, you know, going on, on page 135, there's a Led Zeppelin cover band called. Hammer of the Dogs. So, you know, tip my hat to you for playing around with Hammer of the Gods on that one. Unless there actually is a Hammer of the Dogs band I didn't know about. Well, there was a
2: real Led Zeppelin cover band that I saw and it was all women. It was called Hammer
1: of the Dogs?
2: I'm pretty sure it was, but I tried looking them up and I'm not sure they still exist. And I saw them at Telaka, which is you know, mentioned in the novel to lock the restaurant bar in Tampara, Finland. I might have, you know, but I'm pretty sure that was their name.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, I was giving you credit for a knockoff on Hammer of the Gods, but okay. So I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. So here's the first one. Songs mentioned in Off the Yoga Mat. David Bowie, Scary Monsters, Prince, 1999, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Um,
2: 1999, because of the year the novel is set. And I changed the line, we were dreaming
1: when he wrote this. (laughs) Oh, so (laughs) because of the, the copyright issue?
2: No, but also because Nora's thinking that. It's near the end of the book when she's musing on on how the year 1999 has turned out for her.
1: You would have been remiss had you not at least referenced that song in that book, given the year it was set. Okay, the next one. Drinks mentioned in Off the Yoga Mat. The first one's pretty benign. Lemon Zinger Tea, which Gil has, the character Gil has with Lulu. I'm probably going to mangle some of the pronunciation. Cough Beer. Carhu Beer. And then I can handle this one, A Shot of Whiskey, which Nora has in a bar at Bethany's Band's gig. Can I only pick one? Okay.
2: Carhu, because it's beer, bear beer. Carhu means beer. Bear, bear, beer? Yeah. And I even have a pun in it. Bear beer. Mm.
1: Yeah. Have you tried the cough beer?
2: Yes. I drank all the Finnish beers. And um, the other drink I mentioned is called the long drink, long caro.
1: That's right. Yeah.
2: I just found some. I can hold it up for you. Hold on a second. Oh,
1: please do. It's called the long drink.
2: And this one was brought to the U.S. by Finnish Americans. And the roots of the drink goes to the 1952 summer games in Finland when the country of only 4 million was recovering from the Second World War. Concerned with how to serve drinks quickly to all the visitors, the government commissioned the creation of a revolutionary new liquor drink. And so the first long drink were born. Okay. When I was in Finland and in the novel, it mixes gin with grapefruit and juniper and it goes down real easy.
1: That sounds yummy.
2: And you don't feel like you're, you know, you don't feel like you're getting getting much from it, but it, it has a cumulative effect, <laughs> as I wrote. It's 5.5%
1: alcohol. That'll do it. Yeah. Okay. Things to do in Finland. Gamble in kiosk markets and train stations, karaoke, boogie, or mini golf?
2: Oh, mini golf. All right. I never saw people take mini golf so seriously as I did in Finland.
1: That comes across in the novel.
2: And I have those, those ringers that come in with their own mini golf clubs and balls were real people. And they just like, they did these really difficult courses really quickly. And I just was amazed by that. I thought it was hilarious.
1: Nora asked UC what he likes to do. And he he names some things and says, and boogie. Sometimes I like to go out and boogie. And she says, oh, you like to dance? And he says, well, no, that's not exactly what it is. Do you want to elaborate on that? I don't know. <laughs> okay. So it could be really dirty. There could be something oh, really yeah. dirty in
2: there. It probably is. Because right. the real person that it's based on never told me. So maybe the next time I see him, I'll I'll try to get
1: it out of him. Please do. And then let me know. Okay, two more. Music formats, cassettes, CDs, or vinyl? Oh, wow. I
2: do streaming mostly, so but um, I do still love vinyl. Uh, I need a better turntable, but I st- still have a lot of my vinyl, and um, I still appreciate the sound of vinyl.
1: Good. All right. That's what most people are saying, I think, so far. This is the final one, and this is really important, so think hard about it. Best rock guitarist, Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page, or Jimmy Page? Oh, he's amazing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But Jeff Beck, who just
2: died, was pretty damn good, too.
1: Yes, yes. Hats off to Jeff Beck. That was very sad. All right, Cheryl, what have you got going on now you want to tell listeners about?
2: So I'm still doing, I'm still trying to set up some events for Off the Yoga Mat readings, conversations, book signings. I'm supposed to do a local TV interview uh, in Queens, which is where I grew up, Queens, New York. This show called Live One TV, I'm supposed to be doing that. I'm working on new writing, fiction, and poetry. And, um, you know, you probably know this when you're in the process of promoting Your book it's very hard to write anything new it's extremely difficult to get into the next thing trying i'm really trying and um i've been traveling i love to travel i'm really inspired by traveling and um so you know finland was an inspiration for several books and who knows what's the next place uh several of the things i'm working on now are actually set in iceland So it's also Nordic, but it's really a lot different than Finland in many ways. But the desolation of Iceland and the extreme geology (laughs) is what interests me there, I'd say.
1: Nice. Cheryl, thanks so much for being on the show. Find out more about Cheryl at her website, CherylJFish.com. You can also find her on Twitter and Instagram at CherylJoyFish. Her novel Off the Yoga Mat is available on Kindle or paperback from Amazon, Bookshop, Livingston Press, and wherever you buy books. We'll take another short break. Then we'll be joined by Lucas Hare, co-host of the Is not Rollin' Bob Talkin' Dylan podcast. Lucas and I will talk about what the music icon's career looked like around Y2K, which will give some real-world context to Cheryl's character, UC's Dylan obsession. Back in a minute. Word
0: man with a word my- champagne.
3: This is Lucas Hare, and you're listening to Rock is Lit.
1: Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
0: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
1: And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I'm happy to welcome Lucas Hare back to the show. Lucas Hare is an actor and with Carrie Schell, co-host of the podcast, Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's a veteran of Rock is Lit, having appeared on episode nine featuring Dana Spiota's novel Eat the Document, which took its title from the unreleased Dylan documentary of the same name. Lucas and I talked about Dylan in 1966 in that episode. Now we're fast forward into the period centering around 1999, a year most folks don't associate with Dylan. Thanks for joining me yet again on the podcast, Luke.
3: Pleasure, Christy. Good to hear from you again. See you.
1: Same here. So this episode features Cheryl J. Fish's novel Off the Yoga Mat, which is set during that tumultuous year, 1999, you know, when everybody was freaking out about Y2K. (laughs) One of the characters in the novel is obsessed with Bob Dylan. He calls himself the Finnish Bob Dylan and follows him around Europe whenever Dylan is on tour, which at that time was pretty much a lot. Yeah. And he often quotes Dylan lyrics in conversation. Now, I love Bob Dylan, but the late 90s, early 2000s isn't exactly a period that screams Dylan, as opposed to the 60s and 70s. So I thought it was worth taking a look at what he was up to at this time in his career. I do remember the album Under the Red Sky came out in 1990, but it was a, pretty much a flop, as I recall. Yeah, And yeah. I saw him on that tour. And I even had an Under the Red Sky t shirt from that tour. But that was the last album of original material until we get to 1997, right?
3: Mm hmm. That's right. That's right. And I just have to say, I saw him on that tour as well. And I think you and I should form a support group because those concerts were <laughs> awful. <laughs> they were it, shocking. It was. God. It was awful. Yeah.
1: He wasn't interacting with the crowd. He nope. was kind of surly. He acted like he didn't want to be there. It was not a great show.
3: It, was, no, it wasn't. And I, the weird thing is as a Dylan fan, I have seen him nine times since then. I don't know why I kept going back, but he did get better. That's that's yeah. that I can definitely say. The period I want to talk about is is a bit after that. So yeah, you're right. 1997 is when he starts releasing original songs again. And 1990 until 1997 seemed like forever for me mm-hmm. as a Dylan fan at that time because I thought, have I just come in at the wrong time? Is he a real has been? Is he a joke? Is he never, ever going to do anything interesting ever again? These were very, very realistic concerns to have at the time. Yes. But then ni- 1997, Time Out of Mind comes out, and there's a really good chance to reassess that album at the moment because of this enormous box set of fragments that's just come out where you can hear the album remixed and, in my opinion, freed from lots of, you know, kind of tricksy, echoey, murky production, and it really, really comes alive. But what's interesting about this period is, at the time, all the critics assumed time out of mind was the end. You know, not without reason. You know, he seemed washed up, and it seemed like one final hurrah, and they were sharpening their obituaries for sure. Dylan then later said in, in interviews later, he said, well, actually, it was a beginning. Mm. And I don't think it was either. I don't think it was an ending. It certainly wasn't an ending, but I don't think it was a beginning either because where he went after that album is nothing to do with that album. Whereas where he went from 2001 kind of set the blueprint for where he is even today, I think. So the 1999 period, which I'm cheating to expand to sort of 97 to 2001, is this kind of period where he decides the kind of performer and recording artist he's going to be, which I know sounds crazy for Dylan. He's been around for 35 years at that point. But I think he really has to look and think, well, who am I now? You know, and he gets back into, into touring. I mean, he's, he never left the touring thing, but he's doing, in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, he's doing about 100 shows a year. Wow. In the US a lot, in Europe a bit, in Japan, Australia, wherever. and for much of that time he's got i mean he's got tony garnier playing playing bass which he'd been tony garnier played bass with him from about the early 90s until now he's he's been with him for a very, very long time and he had two guitarists he had larry campbell and then after a certain period he had charlie sexton
1: really okay i didn't know that charlie sexton was yeah. playing with him okay yeah.
3: You know, my brother's a musician and he, he was a big Stevie Ray Vaughan fan and he had the Archangels Angels album, so he knew who Charlie Sexton was and he said to me, wow, that's really something impressive. And Dylan's touring band with those two guitars really, really becomes something. It takes a while to get going because they don't go, you know, they don't hit the ground running. Charlie Sexton joins them, I think, in about May 1999 with what I think is, is one of the key Dylan compositions and certainly his last great song of the 20th century and that is Things Have Changed. Yes. Now this is recorded probably May 1999. It's released the following year. It goes on to win I think an Oscar and a Golden Globe uh-huh. for the film Wonder Boys and it's like it's it, this is what I mean it's nothing like Time Out of Mind but it does sort of set an ethos for the person Dylan's going to be for the rest of his life up to this point which is I'm the old guy who's seen it all and yet I'm still going to stop and tell you what I've seen and I'm going to be pulling in all sorts of influences from the past and I'm going to be repackaging it somehow and what I mean by that is that things change, Love and Theft and every album after that, you can pinpoint any one of them and they've all got at least one if not two or three songs on them where the melodies are lifted wholesale from other songs, where lyrics are Clearly taken from other sources. This very sort of magpie ish, eclectic Dylan comes to the fore. And again, that wasn't completely new. He borrowed structures and lyrics and tunes before. But there's something about the period that we're talking about where he decides that's who he's going to be. And that person is not really on Time Out of Mind. The only similarity is that Time Out of Mind, he really latches onto the blues, I think, as a form and keeps that as a constant in his life, you know? And I don't think there was much regular blues in his output in the immediate time before that. I mean, there's no, right. I mean, you, you could say maybe some of Under the Red Sky has got a bit of blues on it. And then certainly those acoustic albums after that, Good As I have Been To You and World well Gone Wrong, but they are not his songs. That, that is just a right. way to get, get him back into this kind of mindset. But he, as I say, he becomes this guy to whom the blues are very important, to whom the old American folk music is very, very important. You know, the references he's making in his music are from the 20s, the 30s. And you start to see this in, in some of the concerts he plays. I mean, to backtrack a little bit, in 1999, I think he plays 100 and something shows. He plays 102 shows in 1998.
1: And this is, this is still the, the never-ending tour?
3: Yeah, I mean, the fans call it that. He, <laughs> I mean, actually, if we're being very strict about this, the never ending tour ended just before COVID because we're now in the rough and rowdy ways tour. But if you study Dylan's liner notes to World Gone Wrong in 1993, he goes through, <laughs> and you know, he's having a bit of a laugh at our expense, but he goes through exactly what all those tours were called. You know, I think one of them is called <laughs> the Why Do You Look at Me So Strangely tour, which is <laughs> probably when you and me saw him. And I, uh-huh. we know why we looked at him strangely because he was not good. But in 99, he plays in the US, he plays in Europe, he plays with Paul Simon, he plays with Phil Lesh, he plays with Eric Clapton, he does a gig at Tramps in New York. I think he plays 117 shows in that year. But for me, 2000 is even better, if I'm not getting off topic, because I think the Charlie Sexton, Larry Campbell duo is firmly ensconced by that point. And then by the time you get to September, October, two thousand, he does eighteen dates in Europe over three weeks, twelve of which are in the UK and Ireland. And I am saying here right now that if they're going to release any Dylan live album from this period, they should just make it Europe, Fall slash Autumn, two thousand, because those shows are phenomenal, and bits of them have surfaced here and there. I'm, I'm very fond of a show I have got from Glasgow in September, and if you want to hear, you know, Charlie Sexton and Larry Campbell. Cut loose on something like Country Pie, then that's a really good example from, from that gig.
1: Okay. They're really
3: exciting. And I feel a bit of a, a fraud here because I didn't see Dylan on this tour at all. I, I, in, I, well, I was doing other stuff. And I think between 1997 and, God, 2003, I didn't see him at all, actually.
1: Okay, so you didn't see him when he was on tour in 99 with Paul Simon?
3: No, no, not at all.
1: Well, I'll tell you, Luke, I, I called him on that tour. I did see them in Raleigh, oh, okay. North Carolina in 99. And the difference between that show and the one in 1990 was yeah. staggering. Yeah. It was a totally different show. Really, really good performance.
3: This is what's so interesting, isn't it? Because th- that's what I mean about the early 90s. He was washed up. Mm-hmm. And if you if you didn't know that there was a comeback album and 30 more years of touring to come, you would just say, well, this is it. He's a, he's a has-been rock star. He looks awful. He sounds awful. The man has clearly given up. And, th- and I think this is what I'm trying to get at, is that in this period, through doing those 100 or so shows a year, he gets some musicians who really understand him. In one of the interviews around this time, he says, the band I have, have right now are the best band I've ever had. Man for man. Wow! And he's not joking. I mean, he really, he really cares, or he seems to care, whilst singing I used to care but things have changed I mean who knows but (laughs) he didn't care in 1991 I don't think when we saw him I think by the late 90s he's trying to map out what it means to be Bob Dylan and to keep going and you know he he does a lot of little appearances on soundtracks and tribute albums there's you know the Sopranos soundtrack there's a, a Hank Williams tribute he does a Sun Records tribute and what he quite often does if you look at the touring dates, is he'll do about 100 shows and then he'll do a couple of sessions for, you know, Return to Me or I Can't Get You Off My Mind or something like that. And this is what he did with Love and Theft. And I think, and this is quite a controversial thing to say because Dylan fans don't agree with me on this at all, I think his voice on Love and Theft is a real problem. And I think it's because he records Love and Theft at the end of a year's worth of touring. So the band sound fantastic on that album. He sounds exhausted.
0: Tweedledum and tweedledee, they're throwing knives into the machine. Two big bags of dead man's bones, got the noses to the drives.
3: I keep going back to Love and Theft and I keep thinking what am I missing here that everyone else hears and for me it's the voice the, the singing is so is so tired um, which is a shame because it's a great album in many many ways and like I say instrumentally it, it just cooks but for me I really prefer modern times in 2006 and I look at the tour dates and lo and behold he recorded that before going out on the road for 100 shows and you can tell the difference in his voice. And I think there are various points in that period where he learns to, he learns to play the long game a bit better. You know? That sounds very patronizing, like I know more than he does, or he, he, <laughs> he would even care what I think. <laughs> I no, fair like.
1: enough. And I, I actually agree with you about that album. I, I'm not crazy about his voice on that.
3: It's, pain, it's kind of painful, yeah. And I just think it doesn't need to be that way. I'm not one of these people who thinks that Dylan's voice has had it. End of story. You know, compare it to modern times, compare it to Rough and Rowdy Ways, where it not only did he do three albums slash five CDs of sort of Sinatra era tunes and really trained himself to sing those songs. He then also had the pandemic off. So when he comes to record and release Rough and Rowdy Ways, um, his voice has had a rest. And you can really tell, you know, whereas he, I mean, it's a punishing schedule, 100 shows a year. I mean, okay, it's only a third of the year, but still it's a lot. It's a lot to be doing year in, year out.
1: Wasn't there some controversy surrounding that album, Love and Theft?
3: What, you mean with regards to uh, alleged plagiarism?
1: Plagiarism? Yeah, well, see, this is
3: what I mean. This is when he decides that this is how he's going to write songs. He's going to lift bits wholesale from other sources. And, you know, thanks to the internet, it's quite clear that he's done it. I mean it's it's always up to someone to to make the first discovery and say hang on a minute this is just like Unichi Saga's confessions of a yakuza there, and I made a list of some of the phrases I mean in the novel you get things like if it bothers you so much she'd say why don't you just shove off and Dylan sings why don't you just shove off if it bothers you so much you know there are many many examples like this it's not just one or two he's clearly taken those from that from that book but like i say in the age of the internet he's not saying you'll never know about this. It's almost like he's leaving clues for us to pick up on. Similarly, when when Rough and Rowdy Ways came out, there's a song on there, which is a sound-alike of a song called If Seeing is Believing, If Loving is Believing, I think it is, Uh, it's the Sun Records, old 45. And again, people are going to find this out and they're going to say, this is exactly the same. And it's all part of the game, I think, for him. But like I say, before this period, he doesn't do that as much. There are examples in his career where, you know, like Blown in the Wind, the melody is is very loosely based on a tune called No More Auction Block and things like that. But
2: mm-hmm.
3: later on in his life from 2000 onwards, you can literally pick these songs apart and say that Sugar Baby of Love and Theft is an exact sound alike of The Lonesome Road by Gene Austin from 1927.
1: Interesting. Now, what
3: is that? Why does he do that? Because he's clearly not smuggling these things in like we're not going to notice them. We're going to find out sooner or later. <laughs> right. The opening song on that album, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, or Tweedledee and Tweedledum, I forget, never <laughs> forget which one it is. <laughs> is a sound alike of um, a song by Johnny and Jack called Uncle John's Bongos. Uh, there's nothing on Time Out of Mind that's like that. You, you don't look, listen to Time Out of Mind and go, Ah, oh, yeah, that's, that's from this. So at some point after Time Out of Mind, he decides that this is how he's going to continue by sort of plundering American culture and repackaging it somehow.
1: What I found interesting about the situation with the the Japanese author is that when he was made aware of this, the similarities, rather than being upset about it, he was pretty chuffed. He felt kind of honoured that Dylan was doing that, which is an interesting reaction.
3: Well, yeah, and because the same thing happened with Henry Timrod, who's a a Civil War poet whose words are all over... Modern times. And Dylan said in an interview, he said, Before I did this, had you heard of Henry Timrod? No. Have you now? Yeah. And I thought, well, <laughs> th- there's a point, actually. That's he's, the man's got a point. The thing is, 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 I mean, you said the word plagiarism, and it's, it's worth unpacking exactly what that word means. It doesn't mean borrowing stuff, it means to copy other material, but pass it off as your own which is why you cannot self-plagiarise. People say, oh my God, it's like he plagiarised himself. Not possible, because it is yours. You can't pretend it's yours. It is yours. That is what plagiarism means. So if he's not saying, this is mine, then it's not plagiarism. If he's saying, I got this from Henry Timrod, or I got this from, you know, this Japanese novel, or I got this from uh, Sun Records, then he can't be accused of plagiarism. And yet, you know... Talk to the estates of these people who wrote these songs. I mean, look at the writing credits on Good As I've Been To You. I mean, there is one quite notable example where the, because most of these songwriters are dead, but there's one quite notable example, which I think was the estate of Willie Dixon. There's a song on Together Through Life. I think it's my wife's hometown, which is an absolute sound alike of Muddy Waters' recording of I Just Want To Make Love To You. And I think Willie Dixon's estate had the power to say, hang on a minute you're not putting this as words and music by bob dylan that is just not on right and so i think if you look at that credit i think i'm i'm right in saying that there is a co-credit there but so there's there is a murky area here to be discussed for sure i'm not i'm not letting him off i do think if you're going to do that it's probably prudent to acknowledge your sources absolutely you know what I mean.
1: So you mentioned his voice on "Love and Theft," mm. and I agree with you that it's it's not great. Contrast that with his voice on "Time Out of Mind," because there was some criticism of the production of his voice on that album.
3: Yeah, and this is a timely um, point to be having this conversation because now, because of this remix on "Fragments," we have the opportunity to hear a different version of Time Out of Mind, exactly the same takes, but without some of that production. And I just want to say right off the bat, I have no problem with Daniel Lanoir. I love his work on O oh Mercy. I love his work on Emmylou Harris*'s Wrecking Ball. I'm not really a U2 fan, but I have no problem with his production on Joshua Tree, you know, things like that. I'm not saying I don't like what Daniel Lanoir does as a producer, but I am saying I do not like what he does on Time Out of Mind, because it seems to me it gives the songs an air that makes them sound somehow less honest a bit more tricksy if i was being very cruel it sounds like a child has just discovered the button that says add ghostly effect you know <laughs> whereas and the thing is about time out of mind it was always going to it was always a major work you know for 25 years it's clearly been a, a tremendously important album but so much of it for my ears got lost because of that production so that now I listen to it. And I'm not saying, oh my God, this is the ghostly voice of a man in his 50s looking back on his life. And, you know, all that might be true. But listen to it now in this remix by Michael Brower. It's an album of absolute, sheer, undiluted heartbreak. And that was always there, but I couldn't quite hear that. Listen to it now. Oh my God, this man is howling his desolation. And whether it's based on a real life relationship, who knows? But. This man is hurting, and there's something very primal about that. Whereas, you add a few effects, you you add some loops. I mean, the thing I mentioned the blues earlier, right? The thing that Lanoir has gone on record as saying is that he didn't want Time Out of Mind to be a blues album. And right there, I think he missed a point, because of course, Time Out of Mind is many things, but its spirit is absolute, pure, dark midnight heartbroken blues yes i think now and we can hear this we can absolutely hear this and i mean if you read into it there was this song can't wait which daniel lenoir loved so much he thought he wanted it to be a single and as as always happens with dylan the more he records a song the further it gets away from him and if you listen to those versions those four or five versions of can't wait on fragments They are fascinating, and this and and on the original album, I thought it was the one truly indispensable. Sorry, the one truly dispensable song, the one that I never really wanted to bother with. It sounded a bit plodding and a bit dull and a bit blues by numbers. But you know, he sings lines on several of those takes. He he says, "I can't say whether I even want the pain to end or not." Wow, you know what I mean? So that's what I mean when I talk about the blues, and and that's that got lost on time out of mind. And I think when he was. Coming up to Daniel Lanoir and saying, I want this to sound like a Charlie Patton record um, or whatever he was saying. I wish Lanoir had listened a bit more and not got so hung up on this. We can do something new with this as well, because there was a there's a purity of spirit in Time Out of Mind, which you can really only hear on the remix, which is is deep blues. And I think Lanoir lost that.
1: Let's have a listen to some snippets of different versions of Can't Wait. The first is from the original Time Out of Mind album. The next two are versions you can find on the new Time Out of Mind Remix Fragments. Mm come out and I seem to recall Dylan not being very happy with the production of his voice after the fact. Well that's and yeah. he didn't use he didn't use him again, did he? He
3: hasn't yet, you know. <laughs> he hasn't yet. I mean rumors abound that they might do one more together one day, but but I find that difficult to believe, especially as he goes to Lanois when he needs to come back and he certainly doesn't need to come back anymore. I mean at the end of Time Out of Mind, he got this infection around his heart and had a sort of brush with death and joked later on, I thought I'd be seeing Elvis, you know, he was only 56. He's only five years older than I am now. I realize that's not very old, but.
1: That's scary. He's only three <laughs> years older than I <laughs> no, am. You- that's scary. Really? To be, to have an album where you're, people are comparing it to you know, a, a wizened old mm. man kind of lamenting his lost youth. And I think, oh shit, that's only three years older than I am but now. But look how
3: he's proved that, that ethos utterly ridiculous. You know, he's, he's carried on. Correct. But no, I think if word is, is to be believed, I think he did have a bit of a problem with that production. And I think what probably happened, and I'm speculating, is that he got ill and he couldn't oversee those final decisions anymore. And at one point he just said, do you know what? Just Just do it. Just do what you want to do and just put it out. And I think maybe he lost a little bit of control towards the end of that process because he wasn't well. Because for Dylan to sanction a remix of one of his albums, is, it's not unprecedented, but it is very, very rare. So you do tend to think, well, no disrespect to Lanois, but th- there was something nagging at him here that he wanted to, uh, to resolve. I mean, he, he sanctioned a remix of Street Legal too in the late 90s, and that was also an improvement, I think.
1: We can't have a discussion about that album, Time Out of Mine, without talking about the performance of Lovesick at the <laughs> Grammys. Want to take it from here? I mean, I've got two words for you.
3: Soy bomb. Soy bomb, right? Yeah. I remember seeing that at the time, was it February 98 or, or something? And I'm thinking, is this, was this deliberate or not? And I know. I was watching it too, going, what the hell is going on? I know. I th- they've sort of, I think there's even a version online now where they've edited him out, the performance artist whose name escapes me. <laughs> I mean, if, if, it, if we, sh- we could say, let's for sake of argument, that it, it, was not, it was nothing to do with Dylan, and he's such a little trickster, who knows, but let's say it wasn't anything to do with Dylan. In that case, it's a masterpiece of being unflappable on stage, because this guy comes out and starts making these weird movements, and he's got soy bomb written on his naked chest, and Dylan just raises an eyebrow, waits for the security guys to bundle him off, and then just rips into his next guitar solo. <laughs> You know what I mean? (laughs) But this is who Bob Dylan is in the late 90s. He's just just a man who plays for a living. And you get the sense that nothing can really throw him.
1: If you had to put Dylan's career from that period, the late 90s through 2001, into a box and slap a label on it, (laughs) what can you come up up with? with?
3: You could probably make a really good live box of those years, except there's something very strange that goes on with the Dylan office. They've, They've made it an open no no secret they've been very open about the fact that they record all of his shows now with a view to archiving them releasing them and then this fragments box set came out and quite a few of the live recordings were just audience recordings from fans because they were allegedly Mm. better than the professional recordings they had so you think well (laughs) if you're recording every show it's for some it's for something like this right it's for a box set like this so when a box set actually comes out and you issue the, the audience recordings. So they, as, as great as some of those recordings are, some of them just sound like bootlegs, which is a bit troubling. So I'm not sure what live album you could release from this period. But I would, rather than encompassing a too wider a, a reach, too, too large larger period, I would focus on those, those full 2000 shows. Um, but there's something about Dylan in that period where he's learning to be Bob Dylan. Again,
1: I started you know. to say. Let's throw
3: he's, in that word. You know, he is. He's ju- he's just learning to be a working musician again. And like I say, the ethos that he comes up with, this sort of magpie, nick a bit from here, nick a bit from there, um idea, that's still going on. And that's a well. I mean, if we were ever uncertain about his 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 intentions behind this, he announced it with an album called Love and Theft, crying out loud. Well, there you go. He said, "I love this music, and I'm and I'm going to steal it as well." And uh, and he put that album title in inverted commas as well, and nobody knows what that means. To answer your question, I would I would take some of the recordings from from Time Out of Mind. Um, no, I wouldn't. I'd start it with with this era. I'd start it with '99. I'd find some. There's plenty of live recordings which you can give a, a better home to, like the uh, the Johnny Cash song "Train of Love" he does in 1999. There's the Like I said, there's I can't get you off my mind. There's Return to Me. There's uh, Red Cadillac and a Black Moustache. A lot of these these songs he does, one here and there. For me, though, Things Have Changed is such a a key song for this era.
1: I love that song.
3: Me too. I mean, also, I always just imagine all those folkies who look to Dylan for the answers in the pre-electric years when Dylan went to the March on Washington, you know, Fast forward to 99, 2000, and he's saying, I used to care, but things have changed. Just imagine how difficult that must be for people who really want Bob Dylan to care.
1: Right. I mean, juxtapose that with the times they yeah. are changing and the passion that was yeah. in that for a very different era.
3: As someone on our podcast said, you know, someone just because someone says I used to care, but things have changed doesn't mean that he means it. <laughs> You know what I mean. <laughs> if he didn't care, he wouldn't still be making albums. Yeah. And even with his live shows, he wants them to be as good as possible. I think.
1: Except for in 1990, then he just didn't give a shit.
3: No. Yeah. February 91, Hammersmith, Smith. I can barely even discuss that period. It was so so painful. The disappointment <laughs> was huge. <laughs> as I say, I'm I'm always saying this to to friends and podcast guests, and and but it, what I can't quite believe is that he. Is still going. That's over 30 years ago. And he's not just limping on, he's constantly reinvented himself since then. And like I say, in that 97 to 2001 period, he's decided that this is going to be his ethos now. This is how he's going to continue. He can do 100 shows a year, he can do new albums, he can write songs, he can do a bit of crooning if he wants to. You know, constantly redefining what it means to be a rock star between the ages of 55 and 80 two or whatever
1: well thanks so much for all the information about dylan in this period as i said at the beginning it's a period that i didn't know a lot about so this has added a lot to the episode thanks so much luke
3: yeah no thank you thank you and uh yeah it's been a been a total pleasure and just to say that um if i could just plug my own podcast um is it rolling bob talking dylan is uh still available uh it's not we're now on Acast and our April episode will feature the one and only Betty Lavette, who I'm very, very excited to announce. She's quite something. And she she released a whole album of Dylan covers a few years ago called Things Have Changed, and that's also fantastic.
1: Fantastic. Thanks again, Luke.
3: Thank you, Christy.
1: I'm sure I'll be hitting you up again the next time a Dylan-centric rock novel comes on my radar. Speaking of which, don't forget to pick up a copy of Cheryl J. Fish's novel Off the Yoga Mat at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books.
0: Here's someone's distant cry.
1: Stay like tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit. To hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit.
4: Rock is Lit.